Hello, welcome to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast. It's brought to you by The Athletic. You know what we're all about by now. It's me, Ali Maxwell, and with me, Michael Cox. Good day, Michael. How are you doing? What are we on to today? Uh, very well, thank you, Ali. Today we are going to be looking at uh, Inter Milan's 2010 treble with James Horncastle, who's just done a really great piece for the site uh, where he interviews Jose Mourinho and looks back at that success, which you know seems incredible to think that's a decade ago. It still seems quite fresh to me. But uh, yeah, very much looking forward to discussing that. It's great to have James Horncastle back on the podcast. I hope you're well, James. And, and this article, this exclusive interview with Jose Mourinho involved you uh, talking to the special one on the phone. What's his phone manner like, would you say? It's kind of bizarre hearing Jose, a voice that you're kind of so familiar with um, coming through uh, on audio on your phone because it's not entirely um, dissimilar to what you know you experience from I don't know from a your place in a in a press uh, conference or from your place on the on the sofa but I think what was quite ambient about uh, that interview was he was he was walking around it was a fine summer's day in London and uh, he was going from I think one training session to another, so you could hear the kind of whistles and the shouts of uh, of a, a perhaps a, a little session um, going on. So, but he was very he was very genial. He's very happy to to talk about what I think must go down as uh, as one of the biggest moments in in Jose's kind of legend, um, I suppose. A magnificent and in-depth piece. Michael Cox has been cranking out his usual high-quality content as well on the Athletic site. If you want to check out James's exclusive chat with Jose Mourinho, if you want to read what Michael's writing, and so much more as well, the Athletic site is, of course, the place to be. And if you're not a subscriber, theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking will get you a 90-day free trial so three months to weigh it up to see everything it's got to offer uh, and make your decision that's the athletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking uh, just listening to you talk about james about how Mourinho's voice is so recognizable it really gave me a terrible flashback to that time in the mid-2000s where parody songs were quite a big thing and poor Mourinho was just parodied after parody uh, it, it really gives me flashbacks to uh, to that those terrible sort of imitations that people used to do um, but let's talk about this interside I've no doubt that he enjoyed discussing it because it's it's a remarkable story you touched on on all aspects of it throughout your discussion with Mourinho, but specifically, uh, there was a lot of discussion from him about the side's sort of off-pitch relationship. Yeah, I think it was a very uh, tight-knit uh, group, um, one that had already been through a lot together and uh, was reaching the end or the, the kind of twilight of, of their careers. Um, yeah, I think if we give a potted history of, of what had happened to Inter over the course of that decade... Um, they had become the most dominant team in Serie A after 18 years of trying to win the league title. Um, and uh, they were given uh, their first Scudetto by the tribunal that was presiding over the, the Calciopoli scandal, uh, which relegated Juventus and led to points deductions for some of their other rivals like Milan. Um, and yeah, they cherry-picked some of the, the best players uh, from Juventus and they were able to consolidate um, this kind of supremacy over over the rest of the league. But 
what always was kind of held against them was um, what they did in or did not do um, in Europe. And I think it was getting to the stage in the in the yeah the football lives, if you like, of Javier Zanetti, of uh, Walter Samuel, um, even Cordoba, Esteban Cambiaso, um, that uh, yeah maybe they would never win um, what they I suppose needed to win to kind of really put their place in the pantheon of great um, Italian teams. And, you know, Mourinho's arrival, I think, in some respects, gave them hope. It pointed to the the opportunity to maybe win that competition. He was appointed to do just that and had certainly had the track record of overachieving in the Champions League, with most notably with his, his Porto side. Um, and I think because they kind of projected their hope onto him. He was accepted within the group um, and that kind of family dynamic um, would ultimately uh, become crucial, I think, to this team achieving the success that it did. In fact, you know, one of the really kind of telling quotes from from the interview was Jose saying um, in regard to the, the, the second leg of the semi-final against Barcelona that it went beyond tactics. Um, it went um, beyond football. It was it was something about the humanity of, of that group of, of players and they're willing to sacrifice themselves for each other that helped interdo the unprecedented, something that I'd never done before or since in Italian football. Well, you do need those things to line up, don't you, that the off-field personality of a side and the on-pitch tactics as well. So we're going to give this a good overview. But let's not forget... James, let's not gloss over his first season in charge of Inter prior to the 09-10 season. Uh, it was 2008-2009. Uh, just give us the context of uh, the lead-up to his second season, what had happened in that first year. Well, Mourinho had won the league by 10 points, um, but that was no longer enough um, for Massimo Moratti, the, the Inter president. It was no longer enough for the fans at San Siro and the media um, as well. In fact, it was... Uh, concluded that that was a fairly disappointing first season um, from from Mourinho because um, I remember the first few weeks and months of that uh, that campaign, uh, they drew their first game um, against, I think it was Mazzari Sampdoria. Um, their first game at San Siro, they went behind to Catania and ended up needing an own goal to win that game. They lost their first derby um, against Milan as well with Ronaldinho scoring. And, and Ronaldinho by then was kind of past his prime. But everyone, I think, judged that first season on what Inter did in Europe. And uh, even in a, uh, a group that included uh, Panathinaikos, Anothosis and uh, Werder Bremen, you know, they finished runners-up, which is why they got Manchester United um, in the round of 16. And regardless of the fact that Zlatan hit the woodwork, that Deki Stankovic had a good chance, they were second best. And it was clear that United deserved to go through. And Inter were eliminated at exactly the same stage as they had been the previous year against Liverpool uh, when Roberto Mancini was manager. So, you know, sections of the media were asking whether um, the change from Mancini to Mourinho was justified. And I think one of the really telling things at the time and, and, and what we've learnt um, in retrospective is just how angry um, Inter's president, Massimo Moratti, was. And yeah, this is someone who wasn't renowned for, for being patient, even though he was a very paternal owner um, and would often indulge his players and managers. Um, he was trigger happy. And uh, Mourinho had an offer from Real Madrid already then. 
Um, and he could have walked. Instead, he said, look, I know how important this is to you, Massimo, because you know you want to emulate what your father did in the 60s. Inter haven't won the European Cup since he was the owner. That was 45 years ago. I'm going to stick around. And he made the kind of corrections and changes to the team um, to make it competitive the following year. But I still don't think anyone at the start of the 2009-10 season were looking at Inter because of all the baggage, the psychological baggage they carried as a as a contender or one of the favourites for the Champions League that season. Michael, uh, the summer of 2009 is a transfer window for the ages uh, from, from Inter Milan. I mean, just the names of the players that left are a, a list of who's who, really. Ibrahimovic left at that stage. Figo retired. I think Adriano left a, a couple of months before the end of the season. Um, it was an incredible overhaul of the playing staff and lays the foundation for what's to come. Yeah, it did. And, and as James has just explained, of course, Inter were champions. They were a decent side in Mourinho's first season. So to have such an overhaul, really, I would say they completely changed the attacking section of the side, was remarkable. I mean, obviously, with that uh, Ibrahimovic deal, they got in Samueto. At that point, I, I kind of thought Barcelona had done quite well out of that deal. You know, not maybe not accounting the uh, the exchange of money, which was the slightly strange thing. But, you know, Eto had, had proved a difficult character at, uh, at Barcelona and, and Guardiola had actually wanted to get rid of him in his first summer. So I was surprised that really, you know, Inter took him on. But obviously Mourinho did a fantastic job with Eto. I think actually Diego Melito was probably a much better signing. I mean, this was a guy who'd been playing for Genoa and Zaragoza, really mid-table sides in, in Italy and Spain. And he didn't just spearhead the side. He scored both goals in the Champions League final. He scored the winner on the final day in the league. And he scored the winner in the cup final. So, I mean, he almost did the treble off his own back, if you like. It was a remarkable end of season for him. Wesley Schneider had been okay at Real Madrid, obviously a, a tremendously talented player, inconsistently good for Holland. Um, I would say that this was probably his only world-class season under any manager. And, and it was Mourinho, really, who I just think got the best out of him mentally as much as tactically. They also brought in Goran Pandev in, in January, who was, I think, available on a free because of some slightly strange contractual problems at Lazio. And, and Lucio at the back as well, who had been a, a great defender really for much of the last decade. But the interesting thing, I think James touched on this in, on his piece, but to get these players in, there was a lot of kind of very... Uh, clever and crafty exchanges going on. I mean, for for both Milito and um, and Thiago Motta as well, who's someone I didn't mention. In both of those situations, you had two players going the other way to Genoa. So they get rid of four players and they bring in two players. And a lot of these players, Milito, I think was was thirty at that point. Lucio was thirty one. Eto was twenty eight. They weren't really long term signings. They were really signings to say, okay, let's. Let's go all in, try and win the European Cup this season. And what you know, what comes in, in the future, we'll have to worry about when we get to it. Um, but of course, Mourinho wasn't around to have to worry about all that because he uh, won the treble and then was on his way. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even mention Julio Cruz and Hernan Crespo as well, who left the club that summer. In fact, Crespo and Aqua Fresca, the young striker, both moved to Genoa to try and fill the Milito void uh, with mixed success, I think it's fair to say. Uh, James, uh, in English football, Mourinho, both when he was winning with Chelsea in his first spell and certainly when he was not winning quite so much with Manchester United, would be criticised for perceived negative football. Uh, but as we know, different footballing cultures uh, perceive tactics and styles in different ways. Was, was that an issue when he managed in Italian football? 
It was initially, um, certainly in his first season. I think uh, Mancini's uh, Inter had played quite an expansive brand of football and were pretty good to watch. And when Mourinho came in, um, he more or less kept the system the same, which was a 4-4-2 diamond um, at the time. But they were pretty one-dimensional. Um, it was uh, give the ball to Maicon. Maicon will run up the right-hand side and he'll give the ball to Ibrahimovic and Ibrahimovic will score the goals. And that was it. Um, it was it was pretty minimalist. Um, and I think fans expected more, um, certainly because of the, the talent um, that this team has. And, you know, I think, again, while we're talking about a team that was at the end of the 2010s, the aggregate of talent at some Italian clubs um, in the late 90s, um, throughout the beginning of this century, it always makes for an amazing watch to just look at the kind of uh, names on the team sheet and see, you know, just what a what talent a coach could call upon. But I think with time, the teams played better football. We saw certainly in the second season, they scored 99 goals in all competitions. I mean, this is often something that Mourinho goes to when he is defending his teams or defending himself against the accusation that they are negative, that, for example, his Real Madrid side would often score in excess of a 100 goals. And I think it really depended on the opponent. It depended on the situation, um, how his teams played. And I think that was one of the really insightful bits that he he provided us with in the interview, that he, he made the kind of deduction um, after his first season that playing a 4-4-2 diamond was okay in Italy um, because... For example, teams would often defend um, entirely against his Inter side. Uh, their fullbacks would basically stay back. They wouldn't try and attack Inter, um, and so they were they were content to play um, that system in in, uh, in in Italy, and it would get them the results that they needed. But they needed to do something more in Europe. They needed players to. Um, well, not only to, to be prepared to attack and you, you look at the striking talent that he had available, but also just to, to basically, you couldn't have a team playing that narrow against some of the top sides. And he mentions Chelsea, I think perhaps with a bit of self-interest from from the team that he left there, but also Barcelona with uh, with Danny Alves and, and Derek Abidal as, as, as fullbacks that were going to push on and, 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 and playing a diamond against them was, was going to be very difficult. So I, I think it was a team that was always... It was it was always a balanced team, and and sometimes there were there were flourishes that made them really great to watch. I mean, I I really recommend going and seeing particularly the kind of final sixty minutes, if you can put it like that, of their derby against against Milan at the start of the season, where they won four nil. Um, the first goal of that, the Thiago Motta goal, is a fantastic team goal. So. Um, it's, it wasn't just individual brilliance um, in attack that that uh, and clinical uh, finishing that won this treble for Inter. There were, there were also some some really nice team moves as well. And as is often the way with teams that find success in European competitions, Michael, uh, and very much in the Mourinho mould of analysis, preparation, uber-specific game plans, uh, he did approach the Champions League games in a different way when it came to style and tactics. Yeah, James touched on it there in terms of the different systems that he used between Syria and uh, and the Champions League. And I think, you know, the reasons he gave 
in James's piece kind of make perfect sense. It's interesting James mentions that Chelsea game because I went back and, and looked at this game and I was a little bit surprised that he mentioned that Chelsea game as well. But um, due to an injury crisis, Chelsea were actually using Florian Malouda as their left back, which, um, you know, I think that very much qualifies as an attack-minded fullback. But that game, particularly the one in the San Siro, stands out to me as, as the game where... He made almost the most obvious switch between the two systems because he, he started with the 4-3-1-2 with Schneider behind Melito and, and Eto. And the game was 1-0. And then as soon as Esteban Cambiasso scored to make it 2-1 to Inter, Mourinho was obviously really happy with that and, and went to a defensive system and went to his 4-2-3-1. But the funny thing with that is it involved taking off Thiago Motta, who was a you know quite a cautious midfielder, and bringing on Mario Balotelli, who was a very speedy attacker so it actually was an attacker for a midfielder but a defensive change because they went to the the 4-2-3-1 which really was more like 4-4-1-1 with Balotelli and I think must have been Eto sitting in the wide positions and I remember this really confusing the the pundits at the time I remember Gareth Southgate was the pundit on ITV for that game and and said that Mourinho had really made this attacking gamble after he went 2-1 up that hadn't paid off and it it wasn't it was the complete opposite it was you know the typical Mourinho mover a defensive move, uh, a negative move, if you like, but it was, you know, involved bringing on an attacker for a midfielder. So, yeah, maybe it was, uh, maybe that caught out opposition coaches. Who knows? And let's talk about the defensive unit, James, because it's it's a good attacking side, but it's certainly not free scoring. Certainly not in the knockout games in the Coppa Italia or in the Champions League. Uh, Mike on Lucio, Walter Samuel, Javier Zanetti with Matarazzi, Kivu and Cordoba there to step in as well. Uh, not actually too many Italian players in there, but it was a very Italian approach to defending. When you look at Inter and particularly the sides, um, well, not only throughout the, the 2010s, but throughout history, really, the, the, the name Internazionale kind of gives it away. They are a team that was that was formed essentially uh, in dispute um, with, with AC Milan about... Um, the number of foreign players that could play for for the team, and uh, it's always been a a kind of common thread throughout intersides. I mean, this one in particular was was characterised by how many Argentines uh, were in it, and we we spoke about the the asado and the barbecues that they used to put on once a week uh, for bonding. But in terms of the the defensive setup um, of this team, I mean. I think the signing of Lucio was uh, was key because uh, he he gave them a, an agility that they they perhaps didn't have. Cordoba was getting on, Materazzi was getting on, and I think Mourinho did a really good job of cajoling, um, you know, those two kind of senior figures in the dressing room to still buy into what he was doing, still support the team. Yeah, they did get to play in in some of the big games in in cup finals, or I think Materazzi particularly was told, you know, you will you will get to play away at the Bridge um, against against Chelsea. You played in the Premier League before, you know what it's like. Um, that kind of uh, uh, psychology. But Samuel as well, who you know, I think again because he's uh, someone that doesn't uh, say much, um, someone who uh, has always kind of kept his counsel. Uh, just one of the great centre-backs of, of that era, particularly now when you look at uh, how short Argentina are of kind of dependable defenders in in, in, in that position. Samuel, who you know would, would be told at half-time, I think, against Siena in a, in a particularly thrilling 4-3 win, um, which was another kind of big game 
that Inter had at the turn of the year in 2009-10 to go and play centre forward to to help turn the game around, and he scores the winning goal late on. And yeah, speaking to not just Mourinho but another member of his coaching staff, Jose Marais, he says that you know what really stood out about this team for him, and it's not just the defence but the flexibility. And I suppose why I bring it up here in in regards to your question earlier is because Zanetti, for example, could play as a fullback but he could also play in in midfield um, and and often would um, this season. You know, they could go to a back three, which they did in the crucial game in Kiev against against Dynamo um, to kind of overload in attack and chase games. Um, And, you know, as we saw, particularly in that second leg against Barcelona, the discipline, the defensive discipline running throughout the team really was remarkable. And Michael, in midfield, there's one name that really stands out. Uh, a man who, I mean, I'm still furious that he wasn't even on the podium for the Ballon d'Or in 2010. Uh, Mourinho really did get the best out of Wesley Schneider. Yeah, and it, it went downhill as soon as Mourinho left, really. I mean, he he became a really wasteful player in, uh, in the kind of very brief Rafael Benitez era. Even that second half of 2010, he was turning in terrible performances. But yeah, this season he was, he was sensational, really. I'd say really thrived when playing as the number 10 behind... Uh, Behind two strikers, you know, it's not many number 10s that get that luxury in uh, in the modern era, if we can call 10 years ago the modern era. And then played an even more kind of advanced role when they moved to the 4-2-3-1, because as I say, that was really a 4-4-1-1 with Eto and Pandev or Balotelli almost as supplementary fullbacks. And if you look at Schneider's positioning in that Champions League final in particular... He's playing more like a second striker. Um, and this wasn't a guy who scored much. I mean, I think he only scored once from open play in the league that season. He scored a few free kicks as well, of course. But he he's kind of given this free roll to roam behind Melito. And the two of them have a really good relationship. I mean, Schneider's passing range was just fantastic, uh, particularly in that second leg against Chelsea where they won at Stamford Bridge. You know, that was the moment where I really just thought Schneider had become... At that point, maybe the best player in his position in Europe. Obviously, he wasn't able to sustain it. But yeah, he was... I, th- I think if you have to highlight uh, one player who really thrived in this system and thrived under Mourinho, it was Schneider. Because, as I say, I think he was a decent player before. I think he was an underwhelming player afterwards. But for this 2009-10 season, he was probably probably the most impressive player in the Champions League that season. So, yeah, he was the, the main man. We've done a specific podcast about Mourinho much earlier on in in the Zonal Marking Podcast life uh, back before Christmas and you did talk about his relationship and somewhat for some people surprising success with various number 10s so just a little plug for that if anyone wants to hear more we have a huge back catalogue now of podcasts to enjoy and to listen to. Uh, James what about the uh, final third of the pitch up front it it was uh, well there were plenty of different types of player that Mourinho could call upon. Milito, of course, Pandev, Balotelli and Samueletto, of course. How did he juggle them? How did he get the best out of that group? <laughs> well, Mourinho managed to persuade Samueletto, particularly in the second half of that season, to to put in a shift um, on, on the left-hand side more often than not. And I think a lot of people remember him at the Camp Nou playing against Barcelona in that second leg, essentially as an auxiliary fullback. Um, and that was typical of the kind of uh, sacrifice um, and the determination within this team to um, to win the Champions League and go further than they'd ever gone before. Um, but, you know, Eto, as we well know, is a man for the big occasion. Um, 
also just you know looking back at some of those games I don't know whether it's the the time he spent in Spanish football particularly at Barcelona but his his ability to come short and link the play and often play in another striker um, is perhaps a uh, I wouldn't say underrated part of his game, but one that doesn't get the the light shone on it that it deserves. And then, as as Michael said with Melito, and Materazzi talks about this um, in in the piece, it's a mystery that Melito hadn't played for a bigger club earlier in his career, particularly given what he had done um, at Real Zaragoza, for example, where often when they would play against Real Madrid and Barcelona he would be the man who would score not only Zaragoza's goals, but often be the guy upsetting um, those two Spanish giants in those games. And the season where he comes back to Italy for a second spell at Genoa, because his first experience, if I recall correctly, in Europe was was at Genoa, and he got them promoted in the in the, in the season that they, their promotion was then rescinded and they were sent to the third division because of shenanigans that their, their owner, Enrico Preziosi, had got up to. But he was the second top scorer that season behind Zlatan. Um, but he had this knack of scoring in, in the biggest games, um, not only against the, the likes of Juventus, Milan and Inter, but also in the, in the derby in Genoa, which was, which was, which was huge. And um, this is the, the, the season where the prince, as he was known, becomes the king because he is, he is the one guy that you associate this treble with, um, as, as Michael said, for, for scoring in the three deciding games um, that season. Um, but I should also, I mean, again, watching games back from this season, uh, it, it, it's really hard to, to watch Mario Balotelli because... Yeah, he's he's 19 this year, and 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 you see the talent in Balotelli. You see why people were so excited um, by him. Yes, there's there's some moments of, of frustration, like for example, where there's a 5-3 win against Palermo, and he he has a bit of an argument with Samueletto as to who's going to take a penalty. Um, and then there's the the game against Barcelona where he he comes on and uh, Mourinho is, is is furious with him. His teammates are furious furious with him because he's not defending. He's not putting in a shift, and he. He walks off the pitch and he, he kind of throws his shirt um, to the ground. But yeah, he was he was big for them in in the league that season. He came up with I think nine goals. He, he was in double figures in all competitions. And then of course there was Pandev who joined in in uh, in January and and Marais, um, Mourinho's assistant who came in and replaced Villas Boas when Villas Boas went to Porto. Yeah, he says Pandev was like a. This I didn't use this in the piece, but it's like a cool breeze <laughs> who just kind of blew through the team and gave them something else. Yeah, they 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 had lots of options, but as Mourinho said, you know, when it came to deciding what to do in the Champions League, it was either well, I reduce the number of strikers in this team and add another midfielder, or I persuade the strikers to sacrifice themselves and to play in a slightly different role which would give the t- would give the team the balance it needed to be competitive against the absolute elite in uh, in the Champions League but you know I think Michael made a great point earlier that he completely redimensions the attack in in this season um which I don't I think was actually forced upon him I think it was it was an accident rather than designed because Latan left ironically enough because he didn't believe Inter could win the Champions League and he's he's never won the Champions League and Adriano unfortunately was never the never the same same player after his his father passed away um you know from from then on descended into to to addiction and 
I think one of the most exciting and most devastating talents that we we've seen didn't didn't become what what his potential kind of um, signposted he could be. Um, so they they had to make changes and they made absolute all the right decisions. I think when it came to 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 selecting the strikers that they needed to go that little bit further in Europe. It really is the most amazing group of players as a as a large squad and, and we've touched on plenty but just to flag up Patrick Vieira's there for part of this season uh, he makes eight appearances a very young uh, Marco Arnautovic as well I'm sure him and Balotelli were uh, getting up to all sorts off the field and it's it just, just such an interesting mixture of of well players at different parts of their career I guess and it speaks a lot to Mourinho's man management success. Uh, Michael, is there anyone that we've mentioned in terms of players that, that you think deserves a mention before we move on? Any unheralded players here? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned some of those random players because I was looking into squad list and one player who played absolutely no part in this season, so he's kind of irrelevant, but I was just excited to see him there, was Curlon, you know, the, the seal <laughs> who I have absolutely no recollection of him ever being in Europe or ever being at Inter. I kind of thought he just did a seal dribble and then spent the rest of his life in Brazil, but apparently not. Um, on a more serious note, two players I'd mention in, in this category. One is uh, Sulimantari, who, um, you know, I guess people remember playing for Portsmouth, winning the FA Cup there, often came in and did a really good job uh, he had a great year, actually, because he went to the World Cup with Ghana. Obviously, they went on that run to the quarterfinals. And he was just a really good all-round midfielder and someone they didn't really have, I'd say. Someone who was tenacious and aggressive, but also very good on the ball as well. And the other one, you know, just because he's a bit of a personal favourite of mine, is, is Ivan Cordoba. They had, I mean, four real kind of old-school centre-backs in Lucio, Walter Samuel, Marco Materazzi, and then Cordoba, who was, I mean, for those who don't remember him, He's one of these centre-backs that just defies his height because he's he's not a, a tall guy by any means, but is maybe the most impressive jumper I've ever seen in football. And, you know, just there was a few occasions when, you know, it's funny, we were, this was the point where we were really talking about, you know, how Barcelona were using Ibrahimovic as, you know, he almost felt like a plan B who'd become the plan A. And there was this big focus on if he had a kind of a, just a really good player who, in the air, was a different option. And I always thought that Mourinho used Cordoba and, to a certain extent, Materazzi as like a defensive plan B. You know, if you're getting, if you're defending deep and you're being inundated with high balls, if you've got a player who's really good in the air who can just play as an extra centre-back, that can be really useful. And there's quite a few games where Cordoba came on and, and did that job perfectly. So, yeah, I, I'm always a big fan of him. So I uh, thought he merited a mention. I mean, one of the great unheralded players, I say great, and uh, I, this will fall into the category of unserious answers, um, as, as Michael began his with, is Marko Arnautovic, um, because Arnautovic was, was a member of the squad. I think he does have a Champions League medal, um, and he didn't feature, I think, at all, really. Uh, and yet at the uh, treble celebrations at San Siro, the player who is going the wildest and kind of leading the crowd in like a call and response and the crowd is kind of following everything he's doing. So when he kind of lifts his hands up, the crowd roars and it's Arnautovic. And even to this day, you know, the kind of veterans on that inter-team like Javier Zanetti, just, they, they find that one of the funniest moments of that year, just looking at this guy who had really nothing to do with uh, the treble. 
indulge in just enjoying and reveling in all the glory um that uh, that they had achieved so yeah that that was that's a magnificent magnificent part in fact i think if you if you google or youtube marco arnautovic il mito which means marco arnautovic the legend you will you will be able to watch um his his antics um at that uh, at those treble winning celebrations so maybe not an unheralded player but certainly a cult hero among um, even among the interdressing room but there's also there's there's an apocryphal story and bizarrely i can't find any mention of it online which means i must have heard it somehow in person there's a, a story true or potentially not true that when he returned to Werder Bremen, because he was only on loan at Inter Milan that season, uh, he turns up with his Champions League winner's medal, sort of first day back, <laughs> pre-season training. And Torsten Frings, um, who at that stage was a, a real veteran, of course, uh, and a, a German football legend of the time, uh, did not take kindly to that. So you can find some quotes about Torsten Frings saying that he finds Arnautovic very arrogant. But bizarrely, I'm not sure where this medal story has come from. So we, we may have to check that. Uh, let, let's move on to uh, just a, a couple of moments in their Serie A title win. Uh, James, what are the games that stand out to you? It sounds like that der derby against AC Milan earlier in the season was pretty spectacular. What are the other key moments in their title win. Well, I rewatched the derby um, b before I interviewed Mourinho, and I'd forgotten because you know everyone uh, looks back on that game as um, you know a real statement of intent from Inter, uh, the best performance or one of the best performances of that season. It was certainly one that kind of made Schneider's uh, legend as well, even though he doesn't get on the score sheet. But the first 20 minutes of that game, uh, Milan are the team that are making all the chances, and it's it's Leonardo's Milan. Um, Leonardo who replaced Ancelotti when he went to Chelsea and he comes up with this kamikaze like 4-2 fantasia which is the 4-2 the fantasy formation where it's just like literally uh, everyone bombs on forward and Nesta defends and that's it um, and it didn't really last the course in that game as they as they lost 4-0 but I think in the in the league, um, particularly the the game against uh, Siena, which I, I touched upon, where um, they find themselves um, three, I think three two down um, with only five or ten minutes to go, and, and Snyder scores a free kick, and then Samuel, who goes up front, um, scores the winner, and they win late, and it's four three. Um, uh, yeah, because the reason why maybe it didn't that win didn't mean um all that much at that particular time in the in the season because it was January but we, we need to mention how close how close run thing the Scudetto was that year with with Roma coming really from nowhere after Luciano Spalletti walked away after the second game of the season um to go from being 11 points behind Inter to two points in front of them I think with five games of the season remaining and uh I suppose some Inter players would look back as being the most significant game in their title. Uh, when it, that the title that year was when was not actually a game Inter were involved in, but the the one that Roma played against Sampdoria, in which they they took the lead and then Antonio Cassano set up Gianpaolo Pazzini to score twice, and uh, Philippe Philippe is in tears on the bench, and Roma's title hopes are gone. I think that game uh, is is key. And Siena, I think, for all Inter fans, is uh, even though the destiny was in their hands at that stage, Siena in, in in those years for Inter fans became really important. It was where they won the league for the first time on the pitch, with Materazzi scoring a kind of uh, a decisive penalty 
Um, and Siena was where uh, under Moratti went to celebrate league titles. So I think um, all in all, those those were those were the games, um, as well as the one against Samp, um, which would be remiss for me to forget, which was a nil-nil. But they were reduced to nine men after uh, after sort of forty minutes, and they managed to see out uh, a clean sheet. And I think that really well prepared them for what was about to happen in the second leg against Barcelona at the Camp Nou. A very very Mourinho, a few parts of that. No surprise that he relished the games against uh, Leonardo and the four-two Fantasia formation, and and of course defending with nine men as well. Something that you can imagine he he relished to a certain extent. And Michael, when you talk about a, a treble such as this, it often feels like the domestic cup win sort of pales into insignificance compared to the Scudetto and the Champions League victory. But it's certainly not like Inter had an easy run in the Italian Cup. No, they didn't. They had to get past uh, Juventus in the quarterfinal stage. Fiorentina in the semifinals. And actually, Fiorentina were a much better team than Juventus at this stage. And then Roma, the side who finished second in the league in the final. As I mentioned earlier, it was Diego Melito who scored the winner in the uh, in the final. I actually remember the, the semifinal much better and there's two things I think that are particularly important to mention here one is the absolutely bizarre scheduling which is kind of very well very copper Italia the first leg took place on February the 3rd the second the second leg took place on April the 13th so (laughs) there was this there was this three-month break between games which is quite extraordinary but I mentioned I mean I mentioned this really because I think I'm right in saying that the the second leg away at Fiorentina came, I think, two weeks before the trip to the new Camp. And after they went 2-0 up in the tie, so it was 1-0 in the first leg, and they went 1-0 up after an hour through Samuel Eto'o, Inter suddenly transformed into the most defensive team I've ever seen, having not really played that way previously in the game. And I just think this was Mourinho saying, OK, you know, we're in a situation where Fiorentina would need three goals now. Um, because of the away goal. So I think, you know, we're probably uh, done and dusted. So let's just practice for how we're going to play or how we might need to play against Barcelona and then in the final. And honestly, for half an hour, they just don't get out of their own third. I think they bring on an extra centre-back. Presumably it was, I think Cordoba started, but maybe it was Matarazzi they brought on. They end up playing 5-4-1 and they just parked the bus as much as Mourinho has ever parked the bus. And I think that was a good example of how Mourinho was... You know, not just winning games. This was a crucial semi-final second leg, but winning games with a view to winning future games, which you know, obviously, was very handy in uh, in the Champions League run. It's quite interesting to me, James, that in terms of the Champions League win, probably the 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 victory that people in general remember the most is the the win against Barcelona in the semi-final, more so than perhaps the final against Bayern Munich and potentially even in second place given his history with Chelsea uh, is the is the win against what was an incredibly strong Chelsea side in the the round of 16 which from reading your piece you could kind of tell still feels like a really important victory for Mourinho as much as Inter as a club but just personally for him yeah I think that second leg at the bridge in particular was important for them in finding the balance I think that was the first time we really got to see Samueletto playing out left in this kind of quite attritional, um, self-sacrificing uh, role. Um, and I think it meant a lot um, to Mourinho. I mean, you hear Eto saying that his team talk um, before the game was, uh, no team I've coached can beat me. Um, and uh, and they didn't. And um, I think that was something that 
particularly I think mentally for, for for the team that had in the group stages still struggled. They didn't win a game until match day four away in Kiev and they were one nil down after Andrew Shevchenko, their nemesis uh, for many years in in the in the Derby della Madonnina had scored. And I think whereas mentally coming back and winning that game in the last minute in uh, in the Ukraine was uh, was very important in basically kind of just stressing, you know, you're still alive. There's nothing left to lose. Mentally, something clicked that night. I think to to overcome Chelsea um, in in the round of sixteen and and basically b- break through what they hadn't been able to do over the last couple of years, um, be it against Liverpool, be it against Man United, beat a top English side and beat them at the bridge as well. I think that that was really significant. I think it's quite telling that Mourinho says that is the last step in the team basically coming to the realisation that they could do something in the Champions League that year, which I think, you know, going on on what we'd seen from them against Barcelona in the group stages, it was still a big surprise um, that they were able to put out what I think we, we all reflect on as being the best team of our lifetime that we've seen, that 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 iteration of, of of Pep's Barcelona, or maybe maybe the one before, the one after, given that you look in the group stage, some of the some of the players are playing for Pep's Barca who never really fit in at Barca, uh, aside from Yaya Toure. Yaya's still there. And then you've got Zlatan, who again, you know, takes issue with the philosopher and his schoolboy players. And then you've got Thierry, um, who, you know, is an outstanding player, but you know, coming towards the end of his career and just again, I mean, we talk about the players that were in Inter squad that year. I mean, for 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 Barcelona to have three big names outside of of, of that legendary team, yeah, to 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 overcome that, regardless of what people say and slight into by saying, oh, it was only because there was a there was a volcanic ash cloud that you know sort of meant that they Barcelona had, were were knackered from their bus journey and uh, and the like. You know, to still overcome Barcelona when you are what down to ten men after half an hour at the Camp Nou is is pretty pretty extraordinary. As 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 Mourinho said, it goes beyond tactics, goes beyond goes beyond football. Well, Michael, as the the tactical guru, you did actually want to to chat about the first leg, perhaps more so than the incredibly famous performance and scenes at full time at the Camp Nou. Yeah, I mean, James has, has covered much of it there, but I, th- I think people do forget that this Inter side, they could play on the attack. They could really go for teams. And I think for the first hour in particular of that game um, against Barcelona, that really for me was the true Inter. That was what we saw for most of the campaign. I wouldn't say that in Serie A week in, week out, they were a defensive side. As I probably said before, I'm not sure you can win the league in this day and age by being a defensive side. I just think you have to pick up wins. You have to get such a high points tally. And that means that, you know, you have to beat a high proportion of the teams you come up against. And it wasn't just that game. You know, as mentioned earlier, they beat Milan 4-0 in the derby. And that was two games into the season. And and we were all thinking, wow, this this could be something really special. And of course it was. And and yeah, even though it was often a defensive setup and often the, the attackers were redeployed as very defensive wingers, as far as I'm concerned, if you've got a side that's got Schneider, Pande, Veto and Melito in it, there's always going to be goals. There's always going to be excitement. And, you know, Inter's, Inter's performances over the course of the season were a lot more than just parking the bus as they did, I think, to a certain extent, because they were physically exhausted in the last 5-10% of the campaign. James, it's amazing that, you know, we talk in depth about the semi-final, the round of 16, the final itself 
a 2-0 win against Bayern with a goal after 35 minutes and the second after 70. Almost feels slightly anticlimactic looking back because so many of the games that season in the Coppa Italia as well were played on an absolute knife edge. Uh, what do you remember about that night in Madrid uh, and their performance against Bayern Munich? Well, I wasn't going to say it's, it, it felt like a non-event, but it already felt that Inter had, had played the final, that they had overcome a far superior opponent um, to Bayern. Um, Bayern, who had kind of impressed in the group stages in how they absolutely uh, ripped through um, uh, Juventus. Uh, I think they, they inflicted one of the heaviest defeats that uh, Juventus had had in, in Champions League history. They actually beat them 4-1 in, in Turin. Um, but yeah, having, having said that, you look at Bayern finishing second in the group behind, was it Laurent Blanc's Bordeaux? Um, you had, you know, sort of Van Hal doing Van Hal things, um, and even their kind of their, their run um, to the final. Um, you know, they were they were quite fortunate against Fiorentina um, in in the round of sixteen. They only going through on away goals. They progressed on away goals against United in the quarterfinals as well, and they played a, a decent ish. Leon side, but it was very much a Claude Puel Leon side um, rather than um, the ones that used to excite us with kind of Juninho Pernambucano, um, kind, of, you know, kind of whipping in free kicks. So you know, Mourinho, I think, looked back at that final and and quite rightly, you know, looked said, "Boys, Daniel Van Boyten's in defence. Um, go at them." And uh, yeah, Diego Milito had a lot of fun with uh, Van Boyten that night. Um, and uh, I think was it his second goal, um, the, the the dribble and uh, and and going around the keeper. That is a that is a great individual goal by a by a striker. It's not a spectacular goal, but in terms of craft and 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 and, and technique, um, the ability to kind of know when to send the defender off balance when to uh, uh, when to either shoot or take on the goalkeeper um, to go around him and still you know find the right finish i think said everything kind of about the cool heads that inter had up front um that night where it didn't matter what the occasion was um their players didn't didn't let it phase them um and uh yeah, Inter were able to um, do the unprecedented. And uh, as I say at the top of that that interview with Mourinho, this is something that really now goes to the core of their identity. You know, they they sing this song, uh, to, particularly to Juventus fans, about, you know, um, how come you never win the Champions League? Um, and, you know, it's up there with... I say it's up there. I mean, it really should surpass. But, you know, in terms of... Inter have been the the only top Italian side never to be relegated, unlike Juventus, unlike Milan, and they're the only team to win the Champions League, uh, to win the treble. Sorry, and I, I think that meant so much to them, particularly when they were winning the league titles um, from 2006 to 2010, and, and Milan famously won the the Champions League in Athens in 2007, and Massimo Ambrosini, who is who's ordinarily not the kind of most boisterous and kind of shouty kind of um, uh, Milan player, was on the open top bus with a banner which said, "You can shove the scudetto up your ass." And uh, <laughs> you know, I think for Inter to finally get over um, that that hurdle and do it in an unprecedented fashion, um, in such a memorable way, beating the teams that they did on the way and obviously winning everything. I think really, you know, they've lauded that over their rivals ever since and, and you can understand why. And last but not least, how do you follow 
winning a treble if you're Mourinho you leave pretty swiftly and take the job at Real Madrid what did he say in your interview with him about that departure and the manner of it well I mean one of the most famous scenes I think of the final is not what happened on the pitch but what happened outside the Santiago Bernabeu um, just afterwards when he he gets in a car which I think a lot of people thought was a, a Real Madrid company car and he sees Marco Materazzi outside waiting to get on the end of the bus and he jumps out the car and they have this embrace. Um, and, uh, you know, after the, the the medals and after the trophy um, ceremony, Mourinho hadn't gone back to the dressing room um, because he he didn't want to because he, he, he feared it would be too emotional for him. Um, and the reason he didn't fly back to Milan initially with the, with the team was because he felt that, you know, seeing the fans... Uh, react and kind of, I suppose, uh, bow down before him. He would find it very difficult to to see out the negotiations he was having with Real Madrid and and move on um, to become to become their coach. You know, he said that, yeah, that tearful hug that he enjoyed with Materazzi. It was like he was hugging every single Inter player, um, not just Materazzi, who he has and still has a, a fantastic uh, relationship with. So, yeah, to hear Mourinho say. Uh, yeah, he he essentially ran away um, because it was too painful um, to, to to say goodbye. Um, is you know it's it's quite touching, um, really. And I, I think the the empathy that this that him and this group of players have, you know, I think you know, given what we've seen f- from Mourinho in recent years or how his story has been told in recent years, um, to to know that he still has this kind of unbreakable bond with with these players, and they're all on the on a WhatsApp group still to this day um, is I think one of the most impactful uh, legacies, I suppose, of, of, of that, of that 2010 treble winning team. Well, thank you to James Horncastle, to Michael Cox as well for talking me through at Mourinho's treble winning interside from 2009, 2010. There's so much good stuff going on on the athletic site at the moment. Just uh, from James, you've got this exclusive interview with Mourinho. Could I tempt you with the words Ronaldo 1998 with Inter? How about Sven and Lazio? There's exclusives and retrospectives all over the show. Coxie doing what Coxie does as well on the athletic site. So make sure you check it out if you're not a subscriber. You can get a 90-day free trial if you head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking. That's it from the ZM pod this week, but we will be back again next week, of course, with Michael and another special guest and a new fresh topic on the Zonal Marking podcast.